Before the Rings of Power, there were the Silmarils. Before Sauron, there was his master, Morgoth. Before Aragorn and Arwen, there was Beren and Luthien. Welcome to Window on the West, where we explore all the ages of Tolkien's Middle-earth. With your hosts, Jonathan Watson, Michael Grumbine, and Dan Coates. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us today. My name is Jonathan Watson. I'm here from TheOneRing.com, and I'm here along with Michael Grumbine and Daniel Coates. And today, we're going to be going through Chapter 8 of the Silmarillion of the Darkening of Valinor, as Melkor wreaks his havoc, his first real deep havoc on uh, Middle-earth, and we start seeing some of the fruit that that bears. Uh, But before we do... Uh, I wanted to let you know lately that we've been doing more than just podcasts, actually. We have a YouTube channel, and on that YouTube channel, uh, we've been posting shortish videos, videos that uh, mostly go over uh, the Rings of Power, Amazon's uh, new upcoming series. We review different images, the trailer, uh, anything new that's coming out between now and when we post this podcast. So go over there, take a look. Uh, You can uh, look for us on there. Probably the best way to find us is actually just go to theonering.com slash YouTube and it'll forward you right to our channel. You'll be able to get there uh, without having to like wade through anything else uh, through YouTube search. So thewondering.com slash YouTube. Head over there, subscribe, like some videos. Uh, that helps us get more viewers, increases the community. Um, and we really want to start doing a whole lot more uh, when it comes to, you know, already we have such a, a great following of folks listening and uh, viewing what we have. So help us out. Give us a thumbs up. Give us that five-star review. Um, and... Normally, today, uh, we would jump into all that is gold does not glitter, but we don't have that ready today. So we're just going to jump right into the Silmarillion. And uh, the way we start with that in Of the Darkening of Valinor is with... Dan's Big Thought. My Big Thought. Um, Well, this is a little hard for me today. So Of the Darkening of Valinor... Yeah, obviously, we have a new character. We have Ungoliant, which uh, you guys helped me pronounce before we started recording. Um, and so we have like this big, giant spider character and we, that weaves webs of darkness and is going to help Melkor um, uh, attack the, the place of the Blessed Realm, basically. And what, one, one of the details that, that jumped out at me reading this for the first time is that even though this character is all about darkness and weaving webs of darkness around her, um, that at the same time she desires the light. She she hungers and lusts and she's desirous and covetous of getting more light and she can't get enough of it. And so that that detail really jumped out at me where, where they're creeping towards the blessed realm and Tolkien writes, she hungered for light and hated it. And so that really jumped out at me. So um, also I promised Jonathan Watson before we started recording, I would say my big thought was that uh, Tolkien was sexist and making Ungoliant or Ungoliant a woman. There it is. Yeah. So that'll be the thumbnail or the the Uh, title. So, well, we can talk about that too. Um, But I I I thought I would read a uh, C.S. Lewis quote. This is from uh, Mere Christianity where, where he says, wickedness, when you examine it, turns out to be the pursuit of some good in the wrong way. And he goes on to elaborate. You can be good for the mere sake of goodness. You cannot be bad for the mere sake of badness. You can do a kind action when you're not feeling kind. And when it gives you no pleasure, simply because kindness is right. 
but no one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong, only because cruelty was pleasant or useful to him. Mm. In other words, badness cannot succeed even in being bad in the same way in which goodness is good. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And he concludes by saying, evil is a parasite, not an original thing. And I wasn't really sure how to connect those in my head, but something jumped out at me that, that ungoliant desires the light and hates it. And it's, yeah, it, it seems the connection is uh, she desires like the cruelty is what gives her, uh, can you read that cruelty line? What was the line? Oh. That, that, so it's, Cause that's what, that's what jumped out at me is that you do it. You, you engage in cruelty because it is pleasant, right? Yeah, or something no, like that. Yeah. No one ever did a cruel action simply because cruelty is wrong only because cruelty was pleasant or useful. Useful. And I think that's sort of the tie-in. Even though she hates the light, to her, the ability for her to remove the light from the world is more pleasant than any pain that it causes her. That's At least that's the way that maybe, maybe that's the way that I tie it into. But yeah. like she, she looks, she wants a darkened world, right? The webs she weaves are always dark. It's a, the, the dark corner of, uh, is it Avatar? I can't remember the exact location there. Um Avatar, yes, uh, and she she needs the dark, and so if she can get rid of the light in any way, right? That's that's what the, the cruelty hmm. is. What brings her that the end goal of like that that for her is the place that she wants to be. Anyway, well, maybe maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. Wouldn't we say she doesn't need the dark? She produces the dark. She needs the light. She's always hungering for the light, and she's creeping hmm. closer and closer to the light. Hmm. She feeds on it. I I, I I focus on the second part of what. So does she does she crave the light because she craves the dark more? I think she. I mean, the light is clearly some kind of. It, it, she has an appetite for it. She eats it, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and then yeah. she spins out. The the problem with eating it is that as she eats the light, she grows larger and larger. So her hunger remains. So she's mm. she's she's always. I mean, I've yeah. I found Tolkien's description to be one of like animal appetite, where she's. I mean, as a spider. She's eating. She feeds on the light. It's a. She has a need for it, but she hates mm-hmm. it at the same time because she is a creature of darkness. So it's this weird, parasitic relationship where she has. She requires the light, but she is the opposite of the light. She is totally other than the light. Mm-hmm. Um, and then without anything, any light to feed upon, her her um, future is dim, as we will find out in the next chapter. Dim? Did you say dim? <laughs> <laughs> great um, I, I, yeah yeah dad jokes are a specialty <laughs> uh I, the line i think the first line he uses um where it talks about how how the light was sucked up is i, I don't know I, here here's the line there she sucked up all light that she could find in uh in the mountains in the cleft of avatar there she sucked up all the light that she could find and spun it forth again so somehow the light transformed inside her and she spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom until no light more could come to her abode and she was famished, mm. which is true. Yeah, that's an, I'm having trouble reconciling her desire for the light. Does she desire darkness or does darkness just the byproduct of her desire of the light? I, I think it's a, I think it's a byproduct. We see it when she and, and uh, so as we're moving through the chapter, her big act in this chapter, her most important act. It's mm-hmm. not just a cloak Melkor and get him into the Blessed Land and into a Valinor and Amun, but um, to kill and drain the two trees. Right. So when she drains these two trees, and then she drains all the wells of Varda, which are you know these massive lakes of light. So she, 
she keeps growing and then sprouting, just spewing darkness around her. Mm. It doesn't. It it's it's it says it's of malice, so it's there's an intention there, but it doesn't. But it also seems to be kind of a function that she has, where basically, like you, the passage you read, where she drinks the light and then she mm-hmm. spins webs of darkness, and then she needs more light. So she's she's an original despoiler. She she takes the good and she spoils it, literally mm-hmm. and physically in her body, and spits it out as 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 corrupt darkness. Yeah. And it and I found fascinating. The description of the light itself, the the darkness rather itself, um, mm-hmm. that she makes, um, because it says, and this this is near the end of the chapter. But the darkness that followed was more than a loss of light. In that hour, was made a darkness that seemed not a lack, which is the nature of darkness. Normal darkness is a lack of light but a thing with being of its own, for it was indeed made by malice out of light, and it had the power to pierce the eye and enter the mind and heart and mind and strangle the very will. Hmm. So it is a, a physical and psychic force. This dark isn't, that, isn't that in the same way that the light of the two trees is a physical force? It is like it drips, mm-hmm. and so they have the, the, the wells of Varda that mm-hmm. uh, gather that, and so it's like she's the inverse of it. It's, um, yeah, it's, not, normally it's not describing... I was going to say, normally we would say that uh, darkness is the absence of light, but here darkness is actually a thing of its own. Yes. Yeah, I was just going to say it's called unlight. It's 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 mm-hmm. a thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Is that what he says in here, unlight? Yeah, unlight. And this is that's the cloak of darkness she weaves around her and Melkor. A cloak of darkness she yeah. weaves about them when Melkor and Golian set forth an unlight in which things uh, seem yes. to be no more and which eyes could not pierce for it was void. Hmm. So. She's such a weird character because I think um, it's there's nothing else quite like her in that I, that I know of that I can remember uh, offhand in any of the Silmarillion, uh, and yet in the same way that there is an argument over uh, you know over Balrogs have wings, what is Ungoliant? Is she a, a Maiar? Is she part yes. of creation? Is she like an Ent? The one uh, time it gives us a clue is in this chapter. So we should read it. And it says, The Eldar knew not whence she came, but some have said that in ages long before she descended from the darkness that lies about Arda. So this is the outside, above the world, she descends into the, from the darkness that lies about. Um, when Melkor first looked down in envy upon the kingdom of Manwe, and in, in the beginning she was one of those that he corrupted to his service. It's true. It's not explicit, though, that it, that what exactly she is, because in the same way, right? You have the you have the Ents and the Eagles, right? What are the 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 Avar, the uh, I can't I can't remember exactly what the uh, what the Quendi names were, but you have these other beings too. Could she be a separate type of spirit other than Maiar? Well, no, she's not Valar. Interesting I don't think. Think. She she could be in one sense, but we're given classification like there's spirits that enter the world. Um, and they, they they enter in different times and and usually you know, the Valar were the most the greatest and came first, but then the Maiar came as well. And then we have the time like you referenced where the eagles, were, where, you know, yeah. the spirits came down into the eagles and into the ants. She seems to be of that type of that sort where she came down not in the beginning but at another time a little later on. But what's interesting to me is 
what was she like before she was corrupted? Because it said she was corrupted by Melkor. So she was clearly yeah. something with goodness mm. in her. And she wasn't just this void um, uh, and this, this parasitic being. And she was corrupted. It's true. So so that it's fascinating. Obviously, we, what we haven't said in, in all this is what should be obvious to our viewers who have read Lord of the Rings and maybe reading this for the first time, which is there is obviously a clear connection between her and Shelob. The right. But um, we'll, that connection will become clearer as we read a little bit more. But but um, yes, that she's she, but she is distinctly different from Shelob. Shelob does not spin webs of darkness that suck up all light. Her webs are very physical um, and and sticky, and they're spiders' webs. You know, there is a darkness about Shelob, but it's not it's not this kind of darkness. It's not mm-hmm. um, where she sucks up light and then grows larger, and sucks up light and grows larger and hungrier. That's a very Ungoliant thing only. Yeah, what's interesting to me about um, Ungoliant, um, you keep reading, she disowned her own master, that's Melkor, uh, desiring to be mistress of her own lust, taking all things to herself to feed her emptiness. So there's something about her that feels empty, like it's just, just never full, never satisfied. And so you get the, you get the idea, like if, if she had her way, she would just suck up everything that's light in the entire world so that she'd be living in a land of darkness where there'd be no more light for her to suck up. So she would be creating her own uh, famine, I guess. Like she, she's not creating a world that would be good for her to eat anymore, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like like yeah. she'd have nothing left. Like she'd, she'd just be empty at the end. Her prospects are pretty bleak. She is not a creature. <laughs> but... Uh... <laughs> it makes me wonder if she was in in a way she could be um you know related to varda where varda created the stars and the light was that was that was uh, most revered by the elves and in that she revered the light so much but when melkor corrupted her um she hated it but yearned for it at the same time so that emptiness the emptiness of the struggle within her uh, created that hunger for it and and it was just expelled and never sated it, right? So maybe that's it. I, I like that idea. Yeah, I, li- I like that explanation. It's good. It's as good as any, and I, I'll go with that one. And better than most. <laughs> no. Better, better than most. <laughs> Not that I've had a lot of discussions about no, the nature of Ungoliant, but uh, hmm. she, she is yeah. an odd. She's an odd character in in very unique. What's great about Ungoliant is if you did this right, you could have the uh, the first Disney movie, which is the uh, she's the villain. And then you have the second Disney movie where you where she becomes the villain because yeah. she was corrupted by somebody else. Well, no, it explains it so that she's actually the good exactly. the good the good person, right? right? It's Snow White first, or it's uh, yeah. Cinderella first, and then Mal- or Sleeping Beauty first, and then Maleficent, right? Yeah, it's, uh, um, yeah. And then, you just see it from their point of view, you know. Exactly. Hundred one. Right. That'll be Amazon's next TV show. Ungoliant, <laughs> be misunderstood. Sorry, what? They've done it a few times, right? They've done. Uh, they have 101 Dalmatians, and then Cruella yeah. after that. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's got uh, daddy issues or some other family issues that create these major problems within themselves that We're make them evil. And it's a sad, sad thing. Yep. So, in this chapter, the basic the basic plot of this chapter is Melkor and Ungoliant together sneak into Valinor while everyone is partying. And it was interesting that he explains how the party comes about. Why is the festival happening? And, he, and it's kind of artificial in a way. I mean, it's, it's ultimately natural, but it's natural in the Valar-created natural way, um, where where Yavanna sets this 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 time for fruits for and flowering, 
And then whenever there's the cycle of first fruits comes around again, they have the world's greatest party, perhaps the world's <laughs> only party, who knows. And then it's so a harvest all, festival. They're all in one right. place. And we have the, the, the obligatory Tolkien paragraph where people are singing because everyone sings in Tolkien's world. Um, and then, and in that time, we, we all are, we're also told that, you know, they're, they're, that Manway calls all the elves, but he commands Fionor to come as well. And then there's this sort of awkward reconciliation with Thingolfin, which is pretty one-sided. And, yeah, uh, yeah, I wouldn't call it a reconciliation, more of well, a, an absolution for Fingolfin. Like he's 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 absolving himself of any any further problems in his relationship with Feanor. Yeah, I mean, he says he releases Feanor. He says, "I release thee and remember no grievance." So he's, yes, right. So he's he's trying to to explain to Feanor, make it known and, that, that he holds no grudge. Right. That, that's and not only that doesn't hold doesn't hold no grudge, but uh, tells Feanor, I will follow you. You will be king. I am not going to be the high king of the Noldor. It will be you, Feanor. And, right, uh, right. He's, and answering, I mean, he's answering the lie that Feanor believed about him. Right. And Feanor's answer was, I hear thee, so be it. But they did not know the meaning of their words th that their words <laughs> would bear. Exactly. Yeah. So then at that moment... Um, in yet another failure. Well, and let's let's go back a second too, because Feanor didn't come there of his own accord. No, right? He came. He was he was the only one commanded by Manway to come, and he was the one who was not dressed in any raiment, in any uh, ornament, no silver, no gems. Uh, he left the Silmarils, as we will find out later, locked in his uh, iron cage in Formanos. Yeah, so he comes and he doesn't bring anything, and uh, and he's there without any desire at all whatsoever. Well, but but that leaves the rest of 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 you know uh, Tuna and uh, all the city is empty. Everything, everyone is there with Manwe on on Taniquatil, right? Did I get that right? That is yes. correct. Yeah. So anyway, sorry. I wanted to make sure we all understood that Feanor didn't want to be there. He is not. He Boy. made himself unwelcome. And he makes it very clear that he doesn't want to be there in all the ways you described. Exactly, um, yes. And and so he reminds me of the guy that's like forced to go to church with his family. It's like glowering in the back. That's right. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so anyway, the, at that moment, um, Melkor, it turns out he has a spear. We didn't know that. But anyway, he takes his spear. And uh, I think this is the first time his spear is mentioned in the, in the entire book. Mm -hmm. And uh, he smites the trees. And that, that allows Ungoliant to uh, stick her black beacon and drink them all dry, kill the two trees, and they grow larger and larger, so large, and swelled to a shape so vast and hideous that Melkor was afraid. So she, she drinks not only the sap of the trees, but all the wells of Arda, which if our readers remember, are these lakes of the dews, the, the liquid light that has, has been gathered from the dews of Telperion and Laurelin. And, uh, and so, yep. So now that there's no more light, all of a sudden the light, someone hits the light switch and not only that, but the physical darkness that begins to is that issues from Ungoliant that covers the land is a living thing and pierces the eye and enters the heart and mind and strangles the will. So, so, and then they rush off and it says, interestingly, Manway is the only one that can see that you through the darkness, even this physical darkness not just the lack of light from the loss of the two trees, but the physical darkness of Angolian 
cannot stop Manway, so he can pierce the darkness, even even that darkness with his uh, with his gaze. So he sees the a darkness beyond dark, and um, moving huge and vast to the north. So he knows that that's the way that that Melkor must have gone. And uh, the first light that comes into being after that is the hooves. I love that. Nahar from Arome's pursuit. Arome jumps on his horse and they set off with it. They, um, the, with his host. It's, it is interesting that Arome, it's not just Arome. He has his own host um, of, of uh, one would presume Maiar, but perhaps, Hunters. perhaps of elves as well. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, uh, that travel with him. But they, so they all go running off after, and like before, they fail to find Melkor because. Hmm. Um, this is this is my list I'm making now. I'm keeping count of all the ways the Valar are failing, and whenever whenever Melkor comes, I mean, it's just it's it's starting to get a little silly. Um, I can't wait for the special episode podcast when we go over Michael's list of why never to trust the Valar. <laughs> it is interesting, right? Because the Valar are the most powerful beings of good forces for good in the world. They are supernatural in the in the in the classic sense. You know, they're they're almost the gods of Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they're angel- more like angelic beings, as we know from because there is only one god in Tolkien's world. But but they keep making mistakes when it comes to Melkor. They keep failing. They can't. They can't. They they don't understand him. They give him a mercy when they shouldn't. They they trust him when they shouldn't. They chase him and fail to find yeah. him. They fail to put a guard around their land. They only put it up north where they failed to find him so that he's able to get in to dur- during the during the festival. And then they chase after him again. And, you know, they, we have this crazy scene where they can't find him. And Tolkis is standing there waving his arms in the air, beating the air with his fists, like, you know. And, and, and then apparently they go home. And we'll find out in the next chapter they just sort of sit around. They, not only do they combine tactically inept decisions but they combine that with like now we're going to sit and wait and think about all this darkness mm. and, and it's, they're waiting they're waiting for a treyu to come defeat the nothing <laughs> all right uh, dan is that over your head sorry yeah that was the never-ending story okay that's what i just thought uh, like uh, I, I, the whole, the i've got darkness. some homework <laughs> i've got some homework i guess dating myself and michael a little bit more than you sorry um <laughs> so it's it's just it's a um it it is not Tolkien's telling us um, something about the Valor, I think, here, which is really interesting. And he's sort of highlighting their weakness. They they um, they have a, they're, they're, they're not perfect beings. They have they make mistakes and they make quite a few of them um, in regards to their their reactions to Melkor. They never seem to get it. I mean, finally, ultimately, there's going to be a resolution to their relationship with mm. Melkor. But but it's it's um, going to come at great cost. Isn't it interesting then um, kind of riffing on your idea here of the, when the Valar make mistakes is um, again, they have, they have forced someone to do something, right? They haven't guided, like we'd say Gandalf guided the, uh, the peoples of Middle Earth, but they've forced Feanor to come and to be a part to the, of this, of this party. And that, and as we'll see, because they forced him in that way, that, that leads to some big issues down the road. Uh, and, um, and so then again, right. Then other failure of Valor really is Manway t- commanding Fanor to come to this event and leaving Formanos, hmm. which we'll see. Yeah. Is, I turn, think the next doesn't chapter. turn out well. They yeah. have, 
they they have a lot of power and a lot of wisdom, I guess, of some some kind. I mean, they helped create the world um, with their music and their, their stewardship, um, but they have a lot of flaws, and they it comes out oh time and time again. So that's what yeah. I got. Yeah. Um, it is uh, a couple interesting points, but go ahead. Yep. No, no, no go ahead. I was just going to say one of the odd, well, not odd things, but one of the unusual things with this chapter, just details. Melkor, upon appearing to Ungoliant, takes on the form of a Dark Lord. Because remember, he's he's traveled unseen. to avoid, And then at That's that exactly point, from then on out, he's locked into that form. He no longer. So from here, for the rest of the Silmarillion, he is locked into his Dark Lord form and cannot change it anymore. So, and, and that was one of the that was the the one point I was going to bring up is why is that is it because at this point he has so committed himself to the evil that he is unca- incapable of changing or is it in a sense the fear that he has is now um, because of the fear he's unable to can he's unable to uh, you know re- recast himself in a beautiful raiment outside of uh, his dark lord uh, appearance yeah I, that's a great question. I have a third option, which, but I'm not going to oh, talk yeah? about it until next chapter. Okay. It okay. requires what we learn in the next chapter for my theory. But we'll, but it is it is interesting to note that from here on out, he's locked into his Dark Lord form. Yeah. Uh, mm. you, we already mentioned the Unlight, um, which is which which is a parallel to the dews of Telperion and Laureline in its physicality. Um, and then there's a really interesting one that I had not never noticed in the, my previous half dozen times reading the Silmarillion this time, which is that, um, and credit to you, Jonathan, for the audiobook because I both, I'm before each of our our podcasts, I both read it and then I listen to it as well because sometimes I miss things in the reading and vice versa in the listening. So Audiobook will be linked in the show notes. Yep. <laughs> um, but the audiobook called this to my mind. I thought, oh, that's interesting. And then at the very beginning of the next chapter, it, 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 it con- confirms what I, what, what I thought was interesting. And this is when the lights go out. So the lights of Telperion and Laurelin go out, and then there's all this darkness, right? And then it says something really interesting. It says there was, I'm going to read two, the, a couple of the sentences. There was silence in Valinor. No sound could be heard, save only from afar. There came on the wind through the pass of the mountains, the wailing of the Teleri, like the cold cry of gulls. So remember, these are the one group of elves who are not on the mountain because they're they're out on their island. Tolerasea. That is that is a island out in the bay. Um, For it blew chill from the east in that hour, and the vast shadows of the sea were rolled against the wall of the shore. So not only do we have this darkness coming from within Valinor, just the lack of light first, then the physical darkness from Mongolian. But now there's these shadows of the vast shadows of the sea rolled against the walls of the shore, which is totally interesting because like there's darkness from another direction, which is the ocean, which is one of these, always these mysterious forces in the elves, in the life of elves. And then I'm going to cheat and read to you one sentence from the next chapter because it's almost, it's, it's the, it's the first paragraph of the next chapter. So I'm going to cheat because it bears on this point. And it says, but the stars of Varda now glimmered overhead and the air was clear for the winds of Manway had driven away the vapors of death and rolled back the shadows of the sea. Hmm. So, 
So these shadows from the sea are the elves aren't just assailed by the darkness from Ungoliant, but there's these other forces where sh- actual darkness is coming in from a totally yeah. new direction, which is fascinating to me. I hadn't, I hadn't realized that before. There's it seems to me to represent the danger that's always in the ocean um, for the elves, not just not not just <clears throat> not just their masters. yeah and. And you could say that that the darkness, um, the darkness that Ungoliant and Melkor are creating, are also drawing in the other dark things of the world. Oh, that's good. Didn't think of that. That's good. In the same way that you know, Orme would hunt those dark things in Middle Earth, and now uh, there is less fear of the Valar because there is the darkness. Right? There is yeah. no more light. There is there is an undark. There, I would guess, there are still stars unless you're within that unlight, but that's it. There's no more. Um, there's no more uh, vast lamps, vast lights, vast trees to yeah. uh, to, to 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 cast over Middle Earth. Um, yeah, that was one of my favorite lines of the whole the whole chapter, which is that line: "The there was silence in Valinor, and no sound could be heard save only from afar. There came on the wind through the pass of the mountains the wailing of the Teleri, like the cold cry of gulls. It's kind of it's creepy and eerie. I, I think of this as from a cinematic standpoint, and it would be it would be uh, frightening. I think uh, that's one of the things we talked about when, in the Babylon B reads a lot, Dan, is somehow like when you, when you think about how Tolkien described these things, he mm-hmm. had a lot of the vision of what he had was, uh, was overwhelming at times and it would create great stories on the screen uh, when done well. And I think even here it can be done as long as you respect it and don't start changing things randomly like some some certain large corporations might be doing with one of their upcoming TV shows. However, uh, I really like the idea like this, this chapter, I think there's a lot to this chapter that it, you could create um, an amazing visual representation of this here uh, mm-hmm. and inject it with a lot of fear and a lot of trembling as it. I agree. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to add on to that a theme, which I think is really important both for the rings of power, as well as for us to pay attention to, as we read through the Silmarillion. One of the things that people um, frequently that can be missed. Let me put it this way. Um, relatability in storytelling in movies is held in extremely high regard. And where the characters um, in your film or TV series are supposed to be relatable and you're supposed to you know, connect them to the... I, I think actually this is one of the reasons, the side reasons, not just for the, the dollar signs flashing uh, around Hobbits, but it's one of the reasons that they kept Hobbits um, with the Rings of Power series is because there's mm-hmm. the Hobbits are... You know, or supposed to be, I mean, crazy festival costumes aside from our last um, <laughs> look through, they're supposed to be among the more relatable. You know, hobbits are are a relatable piece of Lord of the Rings, where even though they are technically, they're not human, but we relate to the hobbits more than we do to other people in the Lord of the Rings. It's really interesting. So I understand that, that view. However, one of the differences in the Silmarillion is that the Silmarillion is all about a different race entirely. It's about the race of elves. I mean, yes, it has other it has men and dwarves in it and, and other beings, Maiar and Valar, but mm-hmm. it's mostly a tale about the elves. And one of the odd, interesting things about the Silmarillion and one of the things that needs to be captured, and I love how this line actually leads me in my own imagination to, cap, to, to touch on this theme, is that the elves are inherently non-human. They're inherently unrelatable. There are things that Fionor is going to do and the people are going to, and his, and his people are going to follow him into, which we should not understand very well. It should be s- tragic and strange, and there should be something of an air of mystery about this. And the, the wailing of the Teleri is a small taste of that in this, in this, um, 
in this way. Um, whales so eerie and long that you can hear it all the way through across the bay into the through the mountains and, and, and up into the tall. Like this is this is something very odd. And the elves have plenty of those moments throughout mm -hmm. the Silmarillion. And I think it's a does a disservice to Tolkien's work for us to try to humanize them too much. There's 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 something alien about elves that we need mm -hmm. to uh, latch mm -hmm. onto. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't buy the whole notion that you can't, um, you have to make somebody uh, in a film or other creative endeavor that you can relate to, to make it a, an effective tale. Right. And Absolutely you, because you can relate, always relate to parts that goes back to the whole idea. Like if you can't see it, you can't be it that we talked about in one of our videos. Like, no, that's not true. I can identify with certain parts of certain people in certain ways that make me uh, feel emotionally connected to them. They don't have to represent me, re represent me directly. Like a, that's what they say about Star Wars, for instance, with Luke Skywalker, right? He's the guy that we can all sort of uh, understand and long, that we understand his longing and then the saving the princess, right? That whole thing, right? That, the hero with the thousand faces. But yeah, uh, I, I think there's more to it than that. And to uh, it dumbs it down when, you, when, when that's your goal in every story that you tell. Is to right, try and right. create a character and that you have to identify there's, with. A, there's a spectrum of dumbness that you can do you that, that you can <laughs> reach. And I think that when we were reviewing some of those that like the quotes from uh, Lenny, what's his last name? Lenny Henry. Henry, Lenny Henry. That's about as dumb as it gets because that's the I can't relate to a skin color, which is the shallowest of things. And 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 therefore I can't I you know, if you can't see it, then you can't be it. Um, I, I'm even talking farther down the spectrum. I think that that the elves of Silmar the Silmarillion are unrelatable in this interesting, mysterious way, a number of ways, but they're also compelling. And there's mm -hmm. aspects of them that we we can find similarity with, yeah. um, that are that are fascinating, along with their alienness. They're they're but they're alien. And, and I one of the things I really hope from the Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power. I, I don't know how much my hope is going to be fulfilled, but it is one one of the things I would hope for anyone making. A second age tale is capturing the difference between um, what elves feel like and what um, humans feel like, and you know, on screen, elves should feel very, very different. It should not be, and I'm afraid with the Arondir character, they're just trying to make it like an elf you can relate to, and yeah. and, and that's I think you're, you're going to hmm. fail if you do it that way. Anyway, I agree. I agree. Um, yeah, and if you want to hear more about that. Check out, check out our YouTube channel. You can watch our videos there and um, see what we think about some of these new characters, these new, um, the way they're portraying these, the races now in, uh, in Amazon's Rings of Power. All right, final call. Last thoughts? Dan, you've been talking to yeah. Yeah, I had I had one last thought. Um, something that reminded me of something from Lord of the Rings um, that even though there are waves of darkness um, in Tolkien's writings that that it's, it's light versus dark, and sometimes this, the darkness seems very dark. Even this chapter, it ends with a little bit of light. It says, "Then the pursuit was begun, and the earth shook beneath the horses of the host of Orome, and the fire that was stricken from the hooves of Nahar was the first light that returned to Valinor." So, just there's a little bit of light still. And I thought that that was interesting that uh, even though this is a very dark chapter, it's called of, uh, of the darkening of Valinor, that even at the end, there's still good. There's still there's there still activity. There's still there's still a spark of light at the end. Yeah. Yeah. 
But Great. the bigger question is, is what kind of horseshoes did they use on Nahar? <laughs> <laughs> right. Because, yeah. you know, the sparks, they come metal, rock, that's it's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but yeah, yeah, I, there, there's still just a little bit of hope. Yeah. So maybe we'll read the next chapter and that'll just be all thrown out the window. But um, I, thought that was, I thought that was cool, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. Any final thoughts, Michael? I know you and I have been. I said, I said too much probably. So, so I, okay. I looking forward to, uh, to how the, the flight of, of, of the flight of the Noldor or yes. how, how Fionor screws his entire race. <laughs> Oh, it's kind of true. It's kind of true. But before we go into that next week, we do want to end on if you like Tolkien. And today, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the the Book of Lost Tales, which is uh, book one. There's there's a part two to uh, in addition to this one here. Uh, and this is the first of the histories of Middle Earth that was released. I, I, let's see, 1980 something, 81 or 82. Yeah, uh, really I'm guessing, easy. I know uh, Unfinished Tales was 1980. Uh, let's see, I'm leafing through the book here, and I'm going to find out for you. It is 1983, actually. So first one of the histories of Middle-earth. Uh, and this takes the first uh, cosmology that Tolkien wrote for Middle-earth and kind of puts it in a fashion of like where, where you can kind of see what his uh, initial beginnings of this were. I think he was 27 or 28 when most of this was written, somewhere around there in the late 20s. Um, and Christopher Tolkien, uh, he talks about it, about how, how, how hard it was to compile the information in here into something that was cohesive because the notes were scattered in different notebooks. Sometimes his mother apparently rewrote some of Tolkien's notes into a far more legible um, uh, notebook. Uh, but a lot of this here is different than the Silmarillion but you can see where he got a lot of the ideas for it from. And it's actually more complex in here too. It's sort of the, the, the place where, um, where he discusses all the differences between the elves and between the, who, who are actually far, I mean, their whole creation story or the, the whole uh, uh, migration story isn't even there anymore. Um, and anyway, it's, it's not really like reading another version of the Silmarillion. It's sort of like reading the first draft because <clears throat> you can tell Tolkien wasn't as good of a writer at this point either. Uh, when he was writing this, but again, he was 27, 28 and hadn't gone through all the revisions. This was the first time that he actually tried to put down his ideas on here. Um, but it's really interesting. And if you can get through it, um, give it a shot. It's, it can get a little bit dry at times because there is a lot of, uh, naming and renaming and Christopher Tolkien puts in notes about who's who and who eventually became who and things like that. Um, and I think they're even speaking of the R episode today, even Ungoliant is in here, um, and I can't remember the name, but it's, it's similarly different. So it's, it's got, it starts with Ungal, I think, and then it comes into something else. But um, yeah, if you can, if, if you're really interested in how Tolkien came up with, with the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings, then start with the, the Book of Lost Tales part one. Um, and you can, you can shoot for heading through all 12. It's kind of a Robert Jordan-esque uh, <laughs> task in front of you to go through 12 books. Um, but but I, I think, uh, you know, take a break and read, read another, uh, you know, easy fiction book if you want to in the meantime to kind of like, uh, like give, your, give your brain a break and then go on to this, the next book. Um, highly recommend it if you can do it. I think, I think you've read this too, Michael. Yes. They remind, they, remind, uh, they remind me a little bit of my studies, uh, late medieval, early Renaissance. There are, there are people that study, for example, all the early manuscripts of Shakespeare. 
And like, what, yeah. how did, how was, you know, what's the first version of Henry V? And, 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 you know, it's, as you go through the versions and you you see the, 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 the tale unfold, um, it's interesting. There is, a, there is a fascination. It does take a different, a true sort of a different kind of Tolkien nerd to really love <laughs> that stuff. Um, but it, so it's a different kind of read, even from the Silmarillion. These are people listening to us going through the Silmarillion at a snail's pace exactly. at 40 minutes per episode. So they are our people. So they might like it. Our kinds of people. For sure. For sure. All right. So Dan, one day when, when in six years, when we're done through all the other ones, we can, we can go through the book of lost tales. All right. And, I'll, I'll be here for it. Lord willing. <laughs> all right. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. I know this one uh, went a little bit longer than, than usual. Uh, but we appreciate having so many listeners already. Like it's, um, it's uh, a little bit humbling. It's nice to see, but uh, we thank you for listening. And if you haven't subscribed, please do. And also, you know, we could use some five-star reviews. We've got a few, um, but the more the merrier uh, helps us find more Tolkien fans, kind of increase increase the community. You can check us out on YouTube, like I mentioned. Go to thewondering.com slash YouTube. You go straight to our channel. You can subscribe there. See the additional videos uh, that we're posting about the Rings of Power and anything else that, uh, that pops up in our head. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Our username is Torque, T-O-R-C, which is for thewondering.com, T-O-R-C. And, uh, and we're glad to have you along. So next week, we're on to chapter nine, right? Yes, of the Flight of the Noldor. Right. Uh, a little bit of a longer one, but uh, we're, we're getting into the meat of it. And I'm excited to really uh, start looking at all these characters and finding out how they become who they become. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Michael, Dan, and Jonathan want to thank you, the listener, for joining us. Visit us at theonering.com, your source for everything Tolkien, where you can comment on this episode and join the conversation. This is Austin Robertson bidding you farewell. May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. <laughs>